1: Questions
0: you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of. Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mal Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, or if your truth journey brought you here, welcome home. And to listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, you don't want to miss it. Just go to VeritasRadio.com and subscribe. You'll get your login immediately. And the same with SanitasRadio.com. If you have a listen there, I would highly suggest that you do. Well, that's if you'd like to upgrade yourself. It's your life. Take control. And i have some good news for those of you who still have not joined Sanitas. Listen up. For a limited time, if you are an active Veritas subscriber, as a way to say thank you, I will give you four months for the price of three when you subscribe to Sanitas. If you subscribe right now, instead of getting three months, you will receive four months, one full month free. Go to VeritasRadio.com and click on the subscribe button. You will see that loyalty offer right there for all loyal Veritas members who wish to subscribe to Sanitas. It's a way to say thank you for subscribing to both. Take advantage of this offer. Subscribe today and get one month free. And by popular demand, and to celebrate the release of his fifth installment of his Missing 411 series, the new book is titled Missing 411, A Sobering Coincidence. Today's special guest is best-selling author, investigative journalist, former law enforcement officer, and senior executive in the technology sector. David Polites. His research now takes us to the city. To learn more about David Polites and purchase all his books, including the most recent one, visit his website at canonmissing.com, which is also linked at ours. And directly from Colorado, I would like to welcome our good friend, David Polites. Hello, David, and welcome back to Veritas. How are you?
1: Mel, I'm doing great. Thanks again for the invite. Always a pleasure to be here with you.
0: Oh, it's always a delight. Your interviews are always very, very informative, but also very riveting. So before we begin to discuss your your new book, Missing 411, A Subring Coincident, I think it's important to remind the listeners of the existing, or what it seems to be, to any rational mind, a cover-up. Can you tell us what happened after trying several times via the FOIA, the Freedom of Information Act, to request a list of missing persons at Yosemite? national park. You were told again and again that they don't keep a list of the missing. But one day an NPS attorney contacted you. What transpired during that conversation? $34,000 to obtain the list of missing from Yosemite and $1.4 for the list of the entire system. Tell us more.
1: So we, we were given a heads up by other national park rangers that there was a series of disappearances that they didn't understand. The people disappeared in areas that didn't make sense. And when they tried to find out information about it, they were hit with roadblocks and obstructions. And what they essentially stated is that during that first seven to 10 days that someone's missing, there's a lot of publicity, a lot of press, a lot of law enforcement, and then bang, at the end, everyone leaves, that's the end of it. You never hear from it again and that's, there's no follow-up. So the National Park Service has a large contingent of federally trained police officers. And they have a law enforcement branch that has a chief and assistant chief and all the hierarchy you'd see in a city police department. But these are federally trained at the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center, super good, outstanding training, better than most police departments get. Well, we knew that they had this. We know that they're smart people, and uh, most medium-sized police departments and larger always have lists of missing people in their department, and most of them are on a website that the department has. And the general feeling in law enforcement is the more publicity you get about missing people, the better. And uh, so we filed a Freedom of Information Act request against the National Park Service, and we asked for a list of people missing in their jurisdiction, 183 different locations, monuments, etc. And we got a response back that uh, they didn't have any. So we filed again, thinking it's a semantical issue, and we get a call back from an attorney from the National Park Service asking us why we wanted the information. Well, before you go barking up a tree, you want to know what's up that tree and you want to know that you don't make the mistakes and and have obstructions towards getting that info. So I told the attorney, I said, hey, that's an inappropriate question because according to the Freedom of Information Act, you can't use that as part of the reason whether you give the information up or not. So I said, I'm reluctant to say it other than it's for some research. And he says, well, you're not going to get it. And I said, what do you mean I'm not going to get it? And he says, well, we don't keep track of that information. I said, what do you mean you don't keep track? And he goes, we don't have a list of missing people. And I said, well, you guys have lists of movies that you made at various national park landmarks and locations. You have a list of that online. You have a list of all the inventory you have of product at the parks. So you're telling me that you don't have a list of missing people and where they disappeared in your parks. That's correct. And I said, okay, well, if I will file another Freedom of Information Act request, because I'm a published author, there's an exemption for the cost for that. make a long story short, I filed the exemption, and I got a response back saying that my books were not in enough libraries to qualify for that exemption.
0: <laughs> That's laughable.
1: So we did a lot of research, and there's no such thing. There's no such requirement that you have to be in a certain amount of libraries. It just says you have to be a published author. And then they came back and said, because you're not in enough libraries, it's going to cost you $34,000 for a list of missing people from Yosemite because we don't have it. We're going to have to put it together. And then if you want it from our entire system, it's going to cost you $1.4 million. Now, piggyback to that, I filed the same sort of Freedom of Information Act request with the United States Forest service. And they came back with almost an identical response saying, we don't have a list of missing people from our jurisdiction it's unbelievable to me, and everybody else who hears it.
0: So the question is, if they're charging $34,000, is the 34000 for if they allegedly don't have a list?
1: So what they said was is that they'd have to put together that list if we pay the money, and it's going to be time for their staff at $60 an hour to research it and to put the list together.
0: Did you ask him why don't they have a list? If somebody gets lost, why don't they keep that I, I I know I've asked you this question several times before, and you've answered, but just to refresh the memory of our listeners.
1: Well, their response you will almost buckle over it with laughter. Uh, this came from the head of the Freedom of Information Act uh, contact in Denver, uh, a woman named Clarice wilson uh Charis Wilson that works for the National Park Service in Denver. In an email, she told me, we don't need to put together a list because we rely, and this is a quote, on the institutional memory of our employees for that information.
0: <sighs> so if you lose 100 people in one month, you expect everybody to remember everything, every detail.
1: Well, I almost responded back and I said, if it's that easy, then why charge me 1400000 million? Let's just rely <laughs> on that institutional memory.
0: Hey, I'll donate a, a spreadsheet to them. I'll, I'll even... Put a voluntary work of people to just add those to a list, but of course, I think the reason I'm speculating here is because they don't want to add any suspicion. They don't want people to stop going to the national parks and lose all that revenue. So better just, rub, you know, just up, put it under the rug and let you know people have, be happy, do their picnics and just hike, you know, without any worries about what may be transpiring behind the woods.
1: Well, as a as a real good journalist told me probably two or three years ago now, he said, here's an angle for you to think about, is that if the Park Service is aware of some issue of liability on their property and they do nothing about it, then they are liable from that point forward if anything happens. If they claim ignorance of an issue or they don't claim they don't know of an issue, then there is no liability on their behalf. So, Dave, if you have, you know, dozens of people missing from Yosemite and they claim that they don't know that it's a problem, then really there's no liability. So the next person that disappears, the Park Service can just say, well, wow, we we didn't real, realize it was that big an issue.
0: Do they have some kind of disclaimer where we're not responsible for disappearances, loss of or stolen items, you know. Usually, what you see in a commercial establishment. In the event that this happens,
1: uh, there may be one, but I would uh, I would guess that when you entered the park, you would have to be presented with that, or have to sign something, and you never do.
0: Right, right. Now, after many years and thousands of hours of investigative work, have you determined where the largest cluster of missing people fitting your profile is?
1: Oh, without a doubt, it's Yosemite National Park.
0: Is that because it's the largest park?
1: No. No, I, I don't think so, because there's disappearances that go back oh, 50, 60, 70 years that we've documented, where there's been almost two people at a time, or two people with identical backgrounds, missing from the same school, and the parents write documents to the president saying, hey, there's no way our 26-year-old son would just vanish from the floor of a national park. We're requesting that the military comes in and searches. This was sent to Eisenhower. I went to the Eisenhower Library, got a copy of the letter, and Eisenhower just completely ignored it. So this has been going on a long time.
0: It's incredible that in this day and age, we just can't have a database to be able to to track now, David, for years, and this is the focus of today's interview, for years you stayed away from investigating missing people in cities, in the, in the in your urban areas, because the disappearances could easily be attributable to someone being abducted by a gang member, an angry former husband, fill in the blanks, etc. Have you found that the criteria used in investigating cases in the wilderness can now be also applied in the city? In other words, have you now transitioned to the city.
1: So, looking at the last four years, when I was staying in urban areas, national parks, national forest, fifty-two clusters of missing people. Geographical clusters of missing people in North America. One of the criteria. Second one being is that you bring in canines and things, and the the bloodhounds that are brought to the scene sometimes walk in circles. They lay down. They can't find a scent. Third issue is. Sometimes the search and rescue teams have searched an area dozens, maybe walked a trail hundreds of times. They're just about to give up, or they do give up, and a volunteer goes into the area the next week, and in the area that's been searched a hundred times, bango, they find the victim right in the middle of the area that had been searched. So those are a few of the criteria that we've established in those rural areas. Uh, i got to give credit, part of this credit, to George Knapp. Um, investigative journalist in Las Vegas, uh, he and I talk all the time, and he said, you know, you're going you're gonna to migrate to the city, trust me, because you've laid out a finite set of criteria. If you stay to that, and you go to the city, and you're going to be surprised, I think, because there's going to be disappearances there. And it kind of shook me up one time when he said that, but I started paying attention, and over the following three or four months, I was reading an article about uh, a city in Wisconsin, where a series of young men in college disappeared. Uh, They were found in the river, and the cause of death was drowning, and the coroner stated that uh, sometimes they couldn't determine the cause of death, but in the times they could, they did drown, and that the dogs that went looking for the people couldn't find a scent from the place they were last seen. And that, that raised my interest And that was probably the kickoff point. And I was reluctant to really jump in with both feet because of something that you've stated before, Mel, and that is plausible deniability. If I step into this arena, it's going to be easy for naysayers to really come out and say, there is nothing here. It's just drunk college students going out and finding their way to the water and disappearing. But I found a series of cases where medical examiners stepped up. Sometimes it was a secondary autopsy paid for by parents. Other times it was just straight-up law enforcement people saying, hey, they, they got in the water somehow, but how they got from the point they were last seen to the water, we have no idea because there's no evidence how they got from A to B. And then other times the autopsy said, Well, yeah, we found them in the water and they've been missing for four weeks, but we can only prove they were in the water for a week. This goes back to what I stated earlier about victims are often found in an area that had been searched many times. And I don't think that search and rescue people or canines are inept. I don't think the people were there when it was searched. They came back later and they were placed there somehow. I don't understand how, but this new book, Proves beyond a doubt, based on coroner's findings, that this is happening today around North America and five other countries that I can prove that people are getting placed back in the water and they're dead. Where they've been the entire time? Don't know.
0: And that's the question. What happens to, to them? Let's say somebody gets lost. Two weeks go by. They show up at a lake that was searched already and the person is there but they there's no rigor mortis they 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 are not that uh, decomposed so obviously they were placed in the water at the in the end but before we begin discussing the cases in your new book i remember your last book the devils in the details you found some common denominator there or common denominators such as high level of intellect in the missing other common traits what have you found in in city cases anything in common because I started reading the book, and in the end, a lot of the cases seemed so similar, almost as if the script is being played by the, if we say, perpetrators.
1: Exactly correct. So, if people were were dying and finding their way into the water somehow, you would think that there would be alcoholics, the drunks of the world... The vagrants sleeping on sidewalks—they get drunk, they stumble into a bay, a pond. They, they'd be the ones you'd expect being found. But in all my research, there's a, one of those type found. The type that are being found that I've written about are the smartest and the best of the best in that college-age bracket. the The stories are is that these young men and women uh, were star athletes, star scholars, star musicians. On scholarship, they're the ones that are found deceased, dead in the water. And you would think, okay, if you follow the analogy that this is happening, then you have to be able to pass that on to every other college that's on a river, near a river, near a large body of water. And college kids are college kids no matter where you go. If they're drinking at one school, they're going to be drinking at another school. And why aren't if this is truly happening at random, why isn't it happening at random at every university in the world and have these numbers of missing people from those locations? But it's not. It's happening in confined locations in a clustering geographical effect exactly like i I did and I identified in the other missing four one one bucks in rural areas. but now just transition it to a university-college setting near a large body of water.
0: Let's dive into the cases now. The, the first case happens to be in the state where I reside, Arizona, they call it the college town of Tempe. Less than two hours northwest of where I am. Let's begin with Willie jigbezs disappearance, Steve.
1: So Willie uh, disappeared on uh, January fifteenth, two 2011, 24 years old. This is a very rare case of a black man that I write about. And I don't write about them too often because they aren't part of the group that I've, di- I've identified. Uh, but some articles said that Willie was a former Arizona State University student. That wasn't true. He was raised in San Jose, California, location where I was raised. Graduated from Leland High School. 2009, he left for Tempe. And in 2011, he was about to start a new job at Kona Grill, his background was he was a big athlete, 49er fan, giant fan. On January 14th, later in the evening, he went to a party with his friends at a place called the Sotelo Apartments in, in uh, Tempe. Uh, late at night, the party got too big. so.
2: Thank you for listening. To unlock the full two-hour interview, including video formats, downloads, transcripts, exclusive articles, and more, subscribe to Veritas Plus now